Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today could be described as a Science Friday on Smart Talk. We'll be talking about the great American solar eclipse later in the program. But up front today, an invasive species that is devastating ash trees in Pennsylvania and over half the country. The emerald ash borer could make ash trees a thing of the past unless efforts to control them are successful. Joining us today are forest entomologists with the Division of Forest Health within Pennsylvania's Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Dr. Mark Falkenberry and Timothy Toman. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. This is one of those topics that uh, once you think about it, I've heard so many people say, oh, yeah, I've lost an ash tree, or I know of ash trees that are being destroyed by uh, the emerald ash borer. All right, so let's start with the basic question about this insect. Uh, What is it? So basically, it's a beetle that is originally from Asia that was probably in, brought in wooden wooden packing material from in the mid '90s. wasn't found or discovered that it was here until about 2002 uh, in the Detroit area, and since then it's been spreading um, from that area across multiple states. Uh, and it got into Pennsylvania about 2007, and it kills all species of ash. And then it's been found in a couple other species that we don't have much of in Pennsylvania. But And it eats the phloem underneath the bark. So it's basically the part of the tree that transmits um, nutrients down from the leaves t- to be stored in the roots. And eventually it girdles the tree and kills it over a couple of years' time, but pretty quick. We're going to talk about uh, several of the things you just mentioned, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you suspect that it came in the mid-90s from uh, Northeast Asia into the United States. Why did it take so long to be discovered? I mean, it was 2002 in Michigan that uh, it was discovered. Right. It just takes... So we... at the. Early on, they saw ash trees dying, and they kind of there were some other diseases hitting ash at the time, and it was assumed that it was that at first until they started finding the beetles. That this family of beetles usually you don't the damage is done by the larvae, but it's not uh, the beetle itself, right? So the as when they're young before they've turned into the green beetle, that's when the damage is taking place. So the adult beetle is what's flying around, and you would detect, but nobody was really looking for it at first until they started seeing all these dying ash trees. And then they looked more, and it took a long time to even develop traps and things where we could easily find it. You said uh, the green beetle. How would you describe the emerald ash beetle? So it's maybe about the size of a pencil tip. It's pretty small, and it's like a dark, iridescent green. There's some other native things that are more of a shiny, a little shinier, uh, bluer green. And uh, this one's pretty dark, and the adult... Unless you're in a really high population, you don't even see the adults normally. Um, so, you know, we go into stands all the time, and it's only at the right time of the year and the right conditions that you see a lot of the adults. When you say stands, what do you mean stands? Oh, like a stand of trees of oh, ash okay. particular. Or if you, you know, if you have a bunch in your yard, um, you might see some of the adults in the summertime, but the damage is being done mainly by the larvae, and you don't see them because they're underneath the bark of the tree. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, uh, how big of a problem is the emerald ash borer in Pennsylvania? And I mentioned uh, over half the country. I mean, this has spread pretty quickly in the last 15 years. Uh, Yes, I would consider it a grave threat, severe threat. It's in 10 years, it's worked its way all the way across the state. There are only two counties unconfirmed at this point, and they very well might have it. We just haven't found it yet. Chester and Pike. Other than that, it's throughout the state. So it's a severe threat. You can see dead ash everywhere you go. 
it's it's serious. Yeah, it's a little bit surprising that Chester and Pike County, that the, those two counties haven't found it because, well, Pike especially, I mean, there's a lot of forest in, in, in those two counties. And we all think it's probably there. We right, just haven't right, found it yet. Right. So there were three new counties added this year, Delaware, Monroe, and Wayne. So it's worked its way across the state in about 10 years. So I wouldn't be surprised if those are confirmed soon or they already have it. Mm-hmm. You, people might remember we used to have a trapping program in the state with the purple traps hanging in the trees, and that was just a monitoring thing. And since it's so widespread in Pennsylvania, we, we're not doing that to monitor the new counties. And that's the way a lot of the counties were added originally were with those purple traps in various places. So, mm-hmm. so why is this important? So there is about for to me. I mean, Mark may have his own reasons, but for me, it's that there's 45 species of uh, uh, insects, basically, that are known to feed on nothing else other than ash. So that when the ash goes, it's a good chance that 45 other species of insect will go with it. Not to mention the three to four species of ash that we have in the state that will also probably go. Mark probably has his own reasons. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I agree with him. A lot of the times you'll hear about the commercial value of ash, but you don't hear about the, the ecology side so much. So, yeah, that's a good point. Forty-five species of insects. Now, uh, you know, obviously every species has its own place in the ecosystem. So there is a ripple effect if those 45 uh, species of insects that feed on ash trees, uh, if they are eliminated, what is the ripple effect for that? Yeah, they're undoubtedly food for other things like birds, and they, you know, they might eat their own, you know, eating ash and uh, just being there for other things to feed upon. That's a few less species for nesting birds to feed their own young and things like that. So you're you're knocking a pretty good chunk out of the species of Pennsylvania. Invasive species, and I'm going to get back to the ash borer uh, in particular, but invasive species, I mean, nowadays, because we do travel so much, uh, and you, you said uh, that you suspect that it came on a pallet or something like that, that uh, you know came from, uh, from, from Asia, um, and we're going to talk about how it's transported here in, in Pennsylvania and across the country, but invasive species is a real problem in this state, isn't it? It's global, too. It's a global issue. But, yes, it's it's everywhere. Um, there's there's just so, uh, so many things coming in now. We're a global. Everything's coming in, imports. There's just a lot of chances for introduction for everything, not just invasive insects, but invasive diseases, invasive plants, the whole spectrum. Is there one that you could point to? Now, the two of you work in forestry, uh, so we can kind of restrict it to that. But uh, is there one in particular that uh, causes more problems than others, or is this emerald ash borer right there at the top of the list? I mean, yeah, this would be a pretty big one since it's wiping out multiple species of trees. It hits every ash species. There's multiple things in that group in North America it hits all of them. That's a pretty big deal. Like, if you think of chestnut, yeah, it's wiped out, but that was, I mean, on one sense, that was a single species that was wiped out instead of, I think it's like 15 in North America mm-hmm. that are going to go, more than likely. What do we have uh, as far as uh, ash trees here in Pennsylvania? I hear white ash most often, but... There's white, green, there's couple blue and then there's pumpkin ash up in the along the northwest and down the western side of the state that's sprinkled it's considered rare in pennsylvania does this insect attack uh, one species of ash more so than others its favorite is green but it, it goes at once it needs to move on to white or whatever it goes after all of them the, the other one is there's also black ash in the state which is also pretty uncommon why this species of trees more than others well, this beetle has basically evolved in Asia to live on Fraxinus, which is the genus, and it does hit a couple other things in the same family, but um, that's, you know, what it feeds on. And over there, the trees have been evolving with the beetle, so they have some resistance over there. And natural enemies, too. Parasitoids, right. natural predators, they keep everything in check. So there are no natural enemies to the emerald ash borer in Pennsylvania? 
We're well, working on it. Oh, but there's except you guys. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, they're not wearing helmets. And like <laughs> so, so there are, woodpeckers do actually eat a lot, but they're kind of already. By the time you start seeing them on trees, there's already been a lot of damage done. There's also a native, another parasitic wasp that it, uh, in a, that you know it doesn't even have a common name that hits at pretty high percentages. So, so in combination with that, we're trying to introduce some some other species to also go after it as well. So we've been releasing three different species of, and we call them parasitoids because unlike a parasite, which doesn't want to kill its host, these things actually do. So, and they live two, there's three species, two attack the larvae and one goes after the egg. So hopefully when you combine all those factors, you can get the numbers down low enough that the trees can survive with the, even with EAB being present. Now what you're releasing is that a native species? No, we're releasing other species from, they're also from Asia. They're the very, very tiny wasps that are, um, that uh, eat only um, EAB or basically either EAB or in Asia, they might hit a couple other species that are closely related. But in when they're released here, as far as we know, they only hit EAB and uh, um they're living inside the tree, and they're very, very tiny wasps. And so in most cases, if they were flying around you, you wouldn't even know it because the one wasp that lives out its most of its life cycle inside the egg is very, very tiny. It's about as big as the period on the end of a sentence. So is there a danger of introducing another invasive species into or non-native? Let me put it that way. It, let me put right. it that, Is there a, a difference between an invasive species and a non-native well, there are non-native invasive species, and there's also native invasive species like Canada geese right, can be right. considered invasive. But the, so in this case, your hope is that this isn't going to attack anything else. And they they did quite a bit of testing, and we've been releasing it. I think it's been being released in the United States since for ten years, and no one's seen it hit anything else or cause any problems. And two of the three species are established in Pennsylvania, and we haven't had any complaints yet. So, <laughs> what what about pesticides? So there, there's the most effective pesticide against it is it's one that's a restricted use, so you have to hire somebody or somebody has to have a license to apply it, and it's called emamectin benzoate, and it, um, it's injected into the trunk of the tree itself, so it's not sprayed on or anything. You have to actually put um, drill holes in the tree and apply it inside the tree, and that's pretty effective. We use it on keeping some trees alive. That you can also there's also a metoclopred is something that people can buy and apply, but it's not quite as effective, and you have to treat more frequently. Um, but there is research showing that it is effective as long as you use it as the highest dose you can and treat in the spring, preferably over the fall. So, and people can contact us if they have more questions about that. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. We're talking about the emerald ash borer today, or during at least this portion of the program. Our guests, Dr. Mark Falkenberry and Timothy Toman, they are forest entomologists with the Division of Forest Health within Pennsylvania's Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. We have received several emails. We're going to get to some phone calls here in just a moment, too. Lisa asks, what happens to the emerald ash borers when all the ash trees are gone? Will they switch to another species to feed on? This is so sad. We see so many dead ash trees everywhere we go in the state. Um, as far as we know, like they do not attack anything that's outside of the family that ash is in, the family of plants. So it's been seen attacking a couple other relatively closely related things, but it hasn't been seen attacking anything else. Thus, you know, 
if that was going to happen, I think it would already, we get this question a lot, and I think it would already be happening because they're out there in such massive numbers. If they were going to start attacking other species, we be, should be seeing it now. But, but the point that Lisa makes, if there are no more ash trees around, and we certainly hope that that's never going to happen, right. but if they have nothing else to feed on. So for them to lay their eggs on something, the tree, they're detect, tasting the tree basically when they lay eggs on it. So there would have to be some sort of switch that, I mean, is it possible that that would happen? Yeah, but it's probably pretty unlikely. But So I can't guarantee that that won't happen. We just think that it's unlikely. I've, so I have no evidence to say that that will definitely happen. Okay. Sharon asks, uh, thousand canker disease. I'm in Mifflinburg where most of all the ash are dead. This new disease is supposed to kill the walnut trees and is moving closer to Pennsylvania. What's thousand canker disease? Well, We've been trapping for a thousand cankers disease for several years. We haven't detected it. The only detection that we had was an infested pile of wood that was near a, a mill. And once they ground that up, we didn't detect it anymore. So we're not, we're not concerned about it at this time. That doesn't mean we won't in the future, but we haven't detected it yet. What is it? It's a disease that there's a vector, there's a beetle, walnut twig beetle that spreads the disease into the tree and it is a serious problem if you go out to to Colorado if you go to Denver is the one that I saw you'll see a lot of dead walnut everywhere but we haven't seen it here yet so yeah. we're, we're watching out for it right now the best thing the things that we do right around now we'll get out, we'll get out and look for walnuts that are exhibiting some sort of symptoms that that we may that we make and recognize, and we go and check them out, and we haven't seen any yet. So. Is there any way to be proactive? Just be observant, report what you see, tell us, tell the Department of Agriculture, just tell somebody, and people will come out and look. Yeah, people will always come out and look. If you're trying to figure out a plant, a tree to plant, and you live in an urban area, walnut might not be the best choice because it does seem to hit, when it does hit, it seems to hit stressed trees. So in urban trees are usually stressed. So walnut might not be the best choice for down the road if it does come into the state. Real quick, and we were talking uh, a few minutes ago about invasive species. Uh, you know, let's face it, there were a lot of people that, um, you know, they plant non-native trees or flowers or plants in their yard. Is that a good idea? I think it kind of depends on the tree. Like blue spruce is probably a bad choice. It's good, healthy for a while, but they always eventually get diseased, maybe at about 20 to 25 years. That's a big problem where I'm at in the northwest part of the state. And is that a, that's a non-native tree? It's from Colorado or, or right. out We've west. We've heard so it described as right. a Colorado so, blue spruce. Yeah, so out there it's happy, but when you bring it east, but, but it really varies. There are other things that do much better, um, other non-native things. Like a lot of the street trees that have been being planted in the last few years, are, some of those are non-native and they do fine. Like what? I think I don't know where they're all from, but I think that smoke tree and those uh, like these different lilac. The, the, I'm going with the common names. There's these lilac things that they plant. That are those seem to do well, uh, at least for the time being, <laughs> because like those pear trees that are now invasive in some places were originally doing well, and they can be invasive in some places and have, depending on the year, they have a lot of health problems too. What about a Japanese red maple? I mean, that's that's. I have one in my yard. Okay, see, now you've just confessed. (laughs) (laughs) You should have only Pennsylvania Day. It was there when I moved in. All right, okay, I I believe you, Mark. (laughs) It does also seem that the native plants do support a larger variety of of insects that are food for birds and all of those things, so that the native ones do seem to support a a bigger population, but. Like you said, the, the non-native, some of them would do fine. So Okay. Uh, another email before we go to the phone. Uh, George asks, what areas of the U.S. aside from Pennsylvania is the ash borer found, and is climate change affecting their spread? I have 23 in addition to Pennsylvania, or in addition to Michigan, 24 U.S. states. So, What about climate change, the impact of climate change? I uh, I don't I'm not aware of any relationship to climate change on this. The only thing that would even be close is that one of the one of the species that we've been releasing we had to drop because it uh, does better further south than here. So, but I haven't heard of any shift in that. 
With is the emerald ash borer affected by cold weather? No, it's pretty cold where it's from. And, so. and sometimes with, with some pests, the, when the tree or the plant gets stressed, it becomes much more susceptible to attack. But with, with, some, with a lot of invasive species, and with this one, they attack healthy trees, young trees, old trees, whatever. So that would be a good argument if it was something that was stressing a tree out and allowing a pest to attack it. But in this, this is just not the case with it. Mm. Yeah, they, they'll sometimes smell out a stressed tree, but, you know, as soon as they move into an area, they don't care whether it's stressed or healthy. They'll eat it. Mm. Let's take a call from Rob in Shermansville. Rob, you're on the air. Yeah. Rob, go ahead. Rob, are you there? All right, I think uh, he's on a cell phone, and uh, I do have his question, though. He says, is this wave of disease going to come and go? Uh, should we stockpile ash trees for repopulation? Well, we are collecting seed. We're sending seed off, and a project that the, the U.S. Forest Service is, is trying, or has started, and they're trying to expand a little bit into Pennsylvania. We're trying to cooperate with them to get it going is they're going in these stands that ash have been hit really hard and they're looking for ones that just seem to be doing fine. And they'll they'll take them and they'll breed them with other ones and they're trying to develop a, a resistant tree. So people are d working on that. It just takes a little time to get going and money. So, so, so how do you recognize when the ash borer has, uh, you know, has attacked your tree? Well, what happens to the tree, I guess is the question I'm asking. Well, a lot of times people focus on the boreholes, but I always tell people to focus on the stripped bark where the woodpeckers have stripped the bark off trying to get to the larvae. You can see it. You can see it while you're driving down the street. Yeah, so, especially it's a little that that the woodpecker damage is a, is a little more obvious in the winter than right at this time of the year. But the woodpeckers are still attacking the and then but early on when it's first that it, they usually attack the tops of the trees first. So you'll start to see thinning in the top of the tree. That's usually the first sign, and then if you look at that point, you'll see if binoculars or something. You'll see the woodpecker damage high in the tree, and then it will, as it goes down the trunk, the woodpecker damage becomes more obvious lower on the trunk. And so, those are the signs: thinning crown, and then in the winter, it's real. The color seems different in the winter and more obvious. Look for damage then, like in January, February. If a tree has been uh, infested. Is there any way to save it? So the, and most, yeah, you can, the, the chemical treatments work. The one you would, the, what we recommend for most people is, is to hire a, a certified arborist and you can find them online, like um, the International Society of Arboriculture, or you can go on there and find a local arborist and they can inject this chemical into your tree. It um, works. It's expensive, but it works. Yeah. But you have to do it every couple of years. Right. But, I so, mean, even if you've seen some parts of the tree that are dying. Yeah, it'll, the trees, as long as they've got some of their, I mean, not some, you would want to have a, a, at, at, least least, at least half of your crown, preferably more. When you first see the thinning, you would that's the best time to do it because what's the the beetles are damaging the, the structure of the tree. So the sooner you do it, the better because the tree will uh, not be able to move the chemical around. So... You want to do it as quickly as possible. And like Mark was saying, it can be pretty expensive, but removing a tree can also be expensive. So it's kind of figuring out, you know, which one can you afford for the long term because you're probably going to have to do it for a while. Um, it, the chemical lasts two to three years, and you're going to have to repeat it every two to three years for until maybe these parasitoids uh, are proving their effectiveness. So mm. Let's take a call from Jim and Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi. Uh, this is a great topic. Uh, you asked a question a while ago about other uh, invasives, and I just wanted to talk about a couple and, and ask your experts to speak about them. Yeah, the emerald ash borer is just doing tremendous damage. Another one is the woolly adelgid that is just wiping out hemlocks, especially in south-central Pennsylvania. You go to a place like uh, in Pennsylvania close by, and there used to be big stands of hemlocks in there. They're just about all wiped out now. Uh, I uh, actually spent some time uh, maintaining the Appalachian Trail, and I noticed uh, that the, uh, in terms of plant invasives, some of the worst ones are 
uh, well, probably the worst one, I think, is Tree of Heaven, which is also known as Alanthus, which is crowding out all the native species. Other ones are Mile a Minute Weed and Multiflora Rose. It would be great if your experts would talk about some of those. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much for your call. Um, you're familiar with uh, what, he, what he mentioned? Hemlock woolly adelgid was what I studied. That was what I spent all, most of my life, <laughs> most of my adult life studying. I wonder why your eyes got big when he said that. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a serious problem. It it uh it's working its way up. You know, the the common thought is the the really really cold winters will will knock it back, but that's only for so long. So yeah, it is a serious problem. We're doing a very similar approach as we are to ashes that we're using insecticides. We're trying to establish biological control and we're trying to work on a a genetically resistant hemlock. So we're we're doing the same playbook. The other ones, uh, if Tim wants anything to add on him, like Willie Delgid, I know mile a minute's a problem. Uh, Tree of Heaven's a host for a, an invasive. The spotted lanternfly, if that one comes up, uh, it's it's actually a, a host for that invasive insect. So it's a double problem for it. But you know, I, I have to admit, I I did not realize that we had uh, this many. Uh, you know that th- there were this many inspe- invasive species attacking the natives here in in Pennsylvania, and you know what has gotten most of the attention over the last twenty years as far as damaging forest is deer. Um, compared to invasive species, where's the deer rank a- along there? Well, I th- you know, there's some research that indicates that the some of these invasive species go hand in hand with the deer. They kind of work together. One kind of helps advance the other. So that's a, another whole topic area. <laughs> but uh, just really quick, though, this this stuff, we're always having new invasives. We have a new beach disease that nobody really knows that much about at all that's popping up. So um, things are always happening every year. And here's uh, probably some practical information before we take another uh, phone call. How is uh, the pest spread? So it's spread, you know, it's capable of flying quite a distance, uh, first of all, but what really helps it move is people moving it around, like, especially in the early days, um, people would cut, see their dying ash, they would cut it down for firewood, and then they would move it somewhere. I uh, used to work in West Virginia, and there was a guy who brought firewood all the way from Michigan to burn on his property in West Virginia, and he that's one of the introduction points in West Virginia. <laughs> really? Yeah, and he had a stand of ash he was trying to sell. Well, that, you, you see that in areas where, you know, there are campgrounds, parks, firewood for sale. Yeah. How do you know whether uh, this firewood has been infested? Well, I mean, if it's still, we recommend generally that it, if you're going camping somewhere to buy the camp firewood there and burn it there where and just don't stick it in your car and travel all over the place with it because it's interesting since people have looked at this how far people will move firewood thousands of miles <laughs> and it brings lots of stuff with well, it potentially it's one of those things that uh, and you're going down your checklist and I guess you want to make sure you have firewood you'll but, see uh, you'll see signs it'll say buy here burn here uh, okay. uh, some of the not-for-profits will uh-huh. have signs that they make to put up at campsites right. I mean, we're f- yeah I mean it that is def- well. That's one of the things that helps keep us employed and people move it. So <laughs> thank, thank you for moving. It. <laughs> Let's go to Steve in York. Steve, you're on the air. Hi, uh, uh, I'm a physician in York, Pennsylvania, and I've been listening to your station since. Uh, I'm going to pull plug in for you first. Uh, since 1953, uh, for, since that time, I've been listening and uh, only. Look- did stop listening when I went to college and medical school. Um, uh, the ash, tr- ash tree bore. Uh, by the way, you're the only re- voice of reason in the area. Oh, okay. Uh, so, what's your question about the bore, ash bore? The bore. Uh, the bore is. Uh, um, I, we had that in our in our front yard, and three ash trees in our front yard in 1957. So it's not a, not a new problem. Um, uh, and I'm not sure it's the same ash borer or whether it's uh, resistant, resistant species that uh, emerge from uh, pesticides. Uh, there are native things that bore into 
to ash, and especially sometimes in yard trees or things that are, they'll be a little bit more stressed, and they can get them in pretty high numbers. So, mm. hey, Steve, thank you very much for your call, General, We're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for 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 being with us today. So, the future. I mean, I, I in my introduction. I, that's worst case scenario where if we don't get a handle on this, that uh, ash trees could be a thing of the past. Uh, you know, I mean, is that just something that is out of the realm of reality, or you know, are we looking at the potential danger of something like that? We're definitely looking at that possibility. However, there does seem to be some progress with these. The parasitoids that we're releasing seem to be showing at least one of them. Two of them are establishing one is showing that it's reducing the numbers uh, of VAB, but, uh, you know, has to be a younger tree. So we're hoping these other ones will take off. And also the looking for these resistant trees seems to be showing some progress. So what we're probably going to see is trees that are alive now and that are big trees will probably die off. But there's hope that ash will still be around in the future down the road. Tim Tillman and uh, Mark Falkenberry are forest entomologists with the Division of Forest Health and Pennsylvania's Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us thank today. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The solar eclipse this Monday is being anticipated like it's a holiday. Solar eclipses are not rare if you think about Earth as a whole, but the U.S. hasn't seen one like this in 38 years. It will cut a swath from the southeast to the northwest across the country. Here in central Pennsylvania, we won't witness a full eclipse, but uh, still can see a pretty good portion of it. Joining us is Cosmic Mike. He's the senior astronomy educator at the North Museum in Lancaster, and I don't know, should I call you Cosmic or just Mike? Uh, Cosmic's fine. Okay, Cosmic's fine. I doubt that's on your birth certificate. I think there's a Smith in there somewhere, but... Uh, yeah, well, actually, Cosmic Mike's a registered trademark. I see, there you go. <laughs> and we know there are a lot of questions about the, the eclipse coming up on Monday. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, for someone like yourself, Mike, at the North Museum, and uh, is it uh, an educator in astronomy, this has to be a big, uh, as I said, uh, anticipated like a holiday, but it's not just people who have your your occupation that are excited about it. I mean, the entire country, I mean, I know people here at work at the station are traveling down south so they can get a better look or, or see more of the eclipse. I mean, there's a lot of excitement around this. There is. I mean, it's the Astronomer's Super Bowl, but it's not <laughs> just for astronomers. I mean, it's for anyone that has any curiosity or interest in the night sky and the cosmos. All right. So what causes an eclipse to occur? Well, for a solar eclipse, it's basically a special alignment where the moon is in between the Earth and the sun. But there's a lot of variables that have to go just right uh, to be for the equation to yield a solar eclipse. Um, and that's distance, um, because you think of the size of the moon. I mean, it's 400 times smaller than our sun, but yet it's 400 times closer to our own planet. So it has to be at the right distance for the moon to be in between and be able to cast its shadow onto our own planet. Anybody that's located within that shadow will see a solar eclipse. You know, I've heard people ask this question of why don't we see more of them? I mean, like, for example, with each new moon. Yeah, and that's a, a good question because a solar eclipse can only happen during a new moon phase. But the reason we don't have them every month is because the moon's orbit is actually tilted. Um, so sometimes the moon will be too far up or too far below the Earth's orbital plane. And when that happens, you don't have an eclipse. So we've seen pictures. In fact, uh, I have a pretty good one. I say I. I put it on there, but it's not mine, uh, of uh, total uh, solar eclipse. It's on our website, WITF.org. But uh, just kind of give us a sense of what this is going to look like. And we'll start with the areas that uh, we'll see the total solar eclipse and then get back here to central Pennsylvania. Yeah, for those that are actually traveling to the path of totality, which you mentioned earlier, goes from basically Oregon through Tennessee through South Carolina, they will have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity practically because what they will see during totality 
is that daytime will sort of turn into night. People will be able to see the stars. They will be able to see the four planets that are currently visible uh, during the daylight hours. Um, and there's even a star by the name of Regulus that's going to be really close to the sun. So there's a lot to see visually. But for the environmental impact, you'll see a significant temperature drop. You'll also possibly will observe animals acting a little bit differently. What about people? Well, people always act differently <laughs> for different occasions, uh, but there's no real evidence that supports during a solar eclipse we're automatically going to be acting differently. So those people who uh, think that something weird happens during full moons, exactly. that, that something weirder will happen during a solar eclipse, but that wasn't always the case. I mean, our ancestors, you go way back. In fact, what is the first uh, that we know of for sure that a total solar eclipse occurred? Uh, I honestly don't know the specific date for that, but I do know that, you know, there were kings long ago that were very fear fearful of this, and so they actually would put uh, substitutes in their place because um, they just didn't know what would happen. Um, even astrologers back in that time were given the responsibility to predict these events, and if they got it wrong, off with their heads. Um, so it was a serious deal because they didn't understand the science behind it. Um, so solar eclipses have been going on forever, but uh, as far as when the first documented one, uh, that I don't know off the top of my head. When was science able to predict when they would occur? Um, they Well, astrologers were able to predict them with some accuracy. Um, but, um, you know, one of the most significant events was the eclipse of 1918, because that helped to prove uh, Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. Relativity, yeah. And um, so that was a huge deal um, for us, because now that gave us a better understanding of the behavior of light and space and time. All right, so you talked about what uh, those who are in the, the path of the total eclipse will see. What about here in central Pennsylvania? Well, here for Pennsylvania, we are going to see a partial solar eclipse, and we'll have a, approximately about 76% of the sun be covered up by the moon. And so, you know, there'll be a beginning stage where you'll start to see the moon starting, starting to nibble at the sun, if you will. Um, and then um, later on, you'll see it just slowly moving across. Peak will be about 2.42 in the afternoon, and then the eclipse would end about 4. When's it going to start? Uh, it's a, technically about 1.18. Um, That's here in central Pennsylvania. Yes, for here in Pennsylvania, 1.18 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, people are going to want to get out before that, though, just to make sure you catch the very beginning. Why? Well, it's just really nice. It's a, it's a uh, an awe-inspiring moment um, to be able to catch the very moment when this moon becomes visible in front of the sun, visible in the way that you start seeing part of the sun disappear. You mentioned that uh, those who can witness the total eclipse uh, that you know is going from the northwest to the, the, the southeast will see stars and can see some of, of, of the planets. What about here? Will we be able to see stars? Will we be able to see things that we would normally wouldn't during the daytime? No, not at all. And actually, if people... That's bad. I don't it, like... <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Right. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, for those that are clueless that this event is happening, you know, we wouldn't even probably notice that a solar eclipse is taking place. We'll see a slight darkening, um, but again, if you're not aware of it, you could easily overlook it. Uh, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, we won't be able to see the stars or planets or anything like that. But it is something different, obviously. 75% is nothing to sneeze at, that's for sure. We know you have questions about the solar eclipse. There are so many people excited about it. And here's your opportunity to ask some of those questions. Give uh, us a call, and Cosmic Mike will uh, try to answer your questions. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. You can uh, leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page as well. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. We only have about 15 more minutes, so try to get your call in or your email in now so that uh, you can ask those questions. I'm curious, though, uh, you said that humans, for the most part, won't act differently. Unless they be, will be, you know, I, I have to kind of quibble with that a little bit. It's just reading uh, this morning that uh, in the southeastern part of the country, and I'm sure it's this way across the country, in the path of the total eclipse, they expect 
huge traffic jams because there are so many people that are traveling to those areas of the country where they can see the total eclipse. So there's the behavior change right there. But what about animals? I mean, animals will definitely have some sort of change because, you know, animals during the daytime, they're normally active. All of a sudden, it's going to appear nighttime to them, and they're going to sort of act as if it was nighttime and go through their normal routines. I mentioned deer in the last, uh, in the last segment. Deer often uh, travel uh, mostly just before dusk and uh, right after uh, dawn. So an animal like that that is nocturnal with that animal, with that darkness, would they be up and say, oh, it's, it's nighttime. I don't know why it's happened so quickly, but I'm, I'm out here looking for some food. Um, there's a possibility of that for sure. I mean, the totality aspect of the eclipse is you know, going to be a little bit more than two minutes. So it's very limited for animals to do a, a dramatic uh, migration or something right, like right, that. Right. But yeah, they're definitely going to be wondering, and, you know, okay, now I need to do something different than what I normally do. See, I asked that question because there's a practical reason that, uh, you know, as motorists, well, we have to be looking out for more deer on the road around these times. But just to, you know, just bring that up. Good bring up some other uh, topics that uh, may not reckon most people may not recognize but I'm just curious about a shadow band what is a shadow band well you have the moon casting its shadow onto the earth's surface and that's about a 70 mile wide shadow and there's actually two different parts to it so that shadow band is what we sort of call as a path of totality so if you travel into the path of totality then you'd be able to see the solar eclipse mm -hmm. and judy has a question judy's from carlisle and i'm sure that this is a question that many people have judy go right ahead yes i was Wondering how difficult it is to find glasses. I, I'm having trouble locating a place to buy uh, glasses that are uh, recommended for the sighting. Uh, and it's very important, I assume, that we in Pennsylvania have them also, yeah. even though we won't see the total eclipse. Thank you very much for your call. Now, I'm going to have you answer Judy's question if you can, but I want to go take a step backwards before we do. You know, we are not supposed to look directly at this. Why? Well, it can damage your eyes, um, and you may not even notice that right off the bat. You know, it could be later in the day that you realize that your eyes are functioning a little bit differently than what they should be. Um, so, you know, it's just like, you know, you're out on the beach, you protect yourself with sunscreen because you can get, your, your body can be burned if you're out there long enough. Well, if you're staring at the sun long enough, you're going to have a very uh, drastic um um, unreversible damage to your eyes. Saw a story this morning online about a guy who said uh, he looked directly at a solar eclipse in 1963, and his his damage his uh, uh, vision has been permanently damaged. So it does happen, and it's not just during eclipse. I mean, you're not it's, supposed to look at the sun for any length of time anyway. Exactly. You know, it's, it's normal, everyday common sense to exactly. never look at the sun. All right. So to Judy's question, I don't know whether you can answer that or not, but there are fakes out there. How can you, where can you get uh, a legitimate pair of uh, glasses that will protect your sight? Um, they are definitely hard to come by now. A lot of places that we are aware of in the Lancaster area are sold out, ourselves included. Um, and so to be able to make sure that uh, they're legitimate, uh, NASA has a website that has some of the regulations and guidelines of things to look for. But you want to make sure that it has an ISO um, statement uh, that would have a specific number th th and make sure that they are uh, safety regulated. There will also be the ISO logo. What's ISO? Um, it's just a, a way, it's an organization that actually standardizes uh, okay. what the lenses need to be to safely look at the sun. Okay. Um, again, with fakes out there, we know that there may be counterfeiters who put something on the side that said ISO. Is there any way to be 100% sure? Well, I wouldn't say there's... It's hard to say, um, but one thing that one can do is that if you have a pair of sort of eclipse shades, put them on when you're inside of your home. Look around. Can you see any uh, light leakage c coming through the glasses? Because if you put a pair of solar eclipse shades on, you should see 
blackness. Um, a lot of people have been asking me, can I just put sunglasses on? And you can't because they're not blocking enough of the sunlight. You can still see your environment very well. If you put eclipse shades on and you can see your environment, they're definitely no good. But if you see pitch black, uh, then there's a good chance that you're good to go. What about uh, photographing the eclipse? I mean, can you look through uh, you know, your viewfinder and, and say and look through it? Can you safely do that? Um, well, just like with your own eyesight, you need to have special filters okay. to help with your cameras as well. Um, a lot of folks are going to be tempted to take selfies or cell phone pictures of the eclipse. Um, you want to make sure that you have some sort of filter in front of that cell phone camera. Um, otherwise, you might have the risk of damaging the electronics inside. What about, the, do you know what kind? I mean, I'm not asking, I might be asking a photography question, but do you know what kind of filter you can use? Well, you because of the size, uh, you can use solar eclipse shades to put in front of your ah, cell phone okay. camera. Right. Or if you have number 14 shade welder's glass, that's an option as well. But there's a lot of focus on getting these eclipse shades. But the thing I want to make uh, clear is there are other methods, other ways of observing this right, solar well, that's, eclipse. That was my next question. Go ahead. What are those other ways? I mean, it's not, definitely not as uh, dr dramatic as solar eclipse shades, but using a projection method. If something as simple as uh, uh, taking an index card, punching a hole in it, you can then project the image of the sun downward onto another projection surface like a white piece of paper or a sidewalk. Uh, the key there is downward. You don't want to hold the index card up at the sun and look through the hole because um, that defeats the purpose. Right, right. But if you're looking downward, you'll see a very small bright dot, which would be the sun, and during the eclipse itself, you'd slowly see the moon moving in front of it. Um, even something as natural as if you have trees nearby, the light that's traveling through the leaves, that will be projected down onto the ground, and you can see and watch the eclipse that way as well. What about telescopes? Uh, telescopes is a great way to observe uh, the sun if you have the proper solar filters. And uh, at the North Museum, we're having a special event on Monday to celebrate the occasion, and we will have solar telescopes available. Some are white light filters that just reveal sunspots, which are some currently visible in the sun now. And there is also a hydrogen alpha filter that we'll be using that reveals surface features of the sun. Yeah, I, I know there are several locations. I definitely want to give uh, props to North Museum for doing it. What kind of uh, crowd do you expect on, uh, on on Monday? Well, if we base it on the number of phone calls we've been getting, <laughs> we expect to be very uh, crowded. Uh, yeah, but I know there are other areas around too, like Muddy Run, for example. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Where you can you can uh, where normally where there are telescope or you know ways that you can look into space. Yeah, definitely. And Muddy Run Observatory is an exciting uh, opportunity as well because it's a brand new observatory that's opening up on the day of the eclipse. Had a, someone who wanted you to give the NASA glasses website again. Um, well, if you just go to nasa.gov, they definitely have a link on their main page that gives you all sorts of information to the solar eclipse, including safety. My guess is that uh, this is probably the number one topic that NASA has been dealing with for the last few days and will deal with for the next few days. Uh, I had a question from someone when we were talking about this program. Uh, said, you know, I have solar panels on my house. Will my uh, electricity be affected by this? Um, it will be, especially if you're in the path of totality, because <laughs> if you're in the path of totality, it's just going to be like uh, the, the, the output that you would get during nighttime. Mm. Uh, someone here asked, uh, can you use a welding mask to, to view the eclipse? You can. Uh, the recommendation is to use number 14 shade, um, because that blocks the appropriate amount of light that you can safely look at the sun. Um, so if you have that, uh, you definitely could look up look at the sun using that welder's mask. I mentioned in my uh, introduction that, uh, you know, you've heard the word rare being used with this. Yes, it is rare that we have a, a total solar, solar eclipse here in the United States, but solar eclipses are happening around the planet. I don't know if I'd say all the time, but every couple of years, right? Yeah, I mean, on average, a total solar eclipse will take place about every 18 months. And so with that, you know, it's definitely not rare from that perspective, but what's re really rare for us is the fact that it's been 38 years since the continental United States got to experience a total solar eclipse. And so the other aspect of that is just the fact that for one given location to experience a total solar eclipse twice, 
there would be a difference of about 375 years on average. Of mm. course, there's always exceptions. What uh, happens most often, a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse? Well, it's sort of 50-50, um, because in a given calendar year, you will average about four eclipses. And two of those would be lunar, and two of those would be solar. Um, actually, with this calendar year, we've already had two lunar eclipses, and earlier this month was one of them. And then we also had another solar eclipse earlier in the year. They're not all visible from the United States, and so that's why this is really rare and exciting. Yeah, and, and let's face it, when it happens to Americans, it's more exciting, it gets more attention, <laughs> yep. and that kind of thing. Uh, why do eclipse track move eastward, even though the Earth rotates from west to east? That's a very good question. Um, you got the rotation of the Earth, so there's a set speed with that. You have the orbit of the moon, there's a set speed with that. If you take the difference between the two, the moon's shadow is traveling a little bit more than a thousand miles per hour. So because of the Earth's rotation and the movement of the moon, it appears like it's actually moving west to east. Mm -hmm. Will science? What will scientists be doing on Monday? Is there something they can learn from the solar eclipse? There is a lot that they can learn, and actually NASA has a huge fleet of spacecraft, and they're having airplanes and weather balloons um, that are going to be going up on eclipse day. Um, but th the main thing is, is the corona, the atmosphere of the sun, is one of the unknown uh, uh, parts of the sun because we don't have many opportunities to observe it. And during a total solar eclipse, you can observe the corona. And so with this day coming up, there will be a lot that scientists will learn about the corona. Um, and even there's even predictions um, that, well, NASA is asking for predictions as what will the corona look like on eclipse day? Because we just don't know. Um, and it's just not one of those things we can easily observe on a regular basis. Sunspots, someone asked if um, you can see sunspots on the sun if you have a telescope and a filter. Yes, if you have a telescope and a filter, um, you can definitely see sunspots. They're just really black dots on the sun. They're areas of the sun's surface that are cooler than the rest. Um, and I just had my solar scope out yesterday. There's a nice cluster of sunspots that are visible. Um, occasionally, if you have a sunspot about the size of Jupiter, you can even see it with solar eclipse shades. Hmm. Cosmic Mike is uh, an astronomy educator at North Museum in Lancaster. A good place to visit all year round, but uh, especially uh, th this Monday. And I'm sure that uh, as much excitement as this eclipse is uh, creating around the country, that even, you know, the more we get, the closer we get to Monday, the more we will have even more excitement. Cosmic Mike, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity. Coming up on Monday, before the eclipse uh, is seen here in central Pennsylvania, we're going to be talking about another environmental topic. This is uh, the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay, but we're talking about it being cleaned up privately. Just a few weeks ago, we had uh, several branches, several cabinet secretaries on the program talking about the, what the government is doing to clean up the bay. We'll be talking about uh, how it's happening in private hands as well. That's coming up on Monday. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.